Welcome to Anatomy of a Verse, the podcast that examines rap music and hip-hop culture one verse at a time. Today's episode is about Chad Butler, better known as Pimp C, and his guest verse on Jay-Z's 1999 hit single, Big Pimpin'. Here's a little story that must be told. It's a music that is all beat and talk. It's rap music. Hey, we don't do that in my music, man. I'm tired of you saying that. Yeah, dude. how about the gang rape on it? Well, when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. You had a, a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. And they, they, they've given them permission to go down and shoot us. It's the For many, this verse represents a tipping point, when the South began shaping mainstream hip-hop culture more than the East or West coasts. The song was a huge hit, and it introduced millions of people to UGK, a duo from the small city of Port Arthur, Texas, made up of rapper Bun B and rapper-producer Pimp C. I was just 13 years old when this song came out, and I remember hearing Pimpsey's verse for the first time and just feeling totally confused. To me, as a kid, hip-hop was supposed to be about clever lyrics and rhythmic complexity, but this guy wasn't doing any of that. He had a different set of rules in mind. He had a vision, and his vision would turn out to be the future of hip-hop. But if we want to talk about how Chad Butler revolutionized hip-hop music, We have to go back to the late 80s, when he was just a shy, nerdy teenager who could play almost every instrument in the school band and a competitive singer in his high school choir, who had once even performed at Carnegie Hall. Chad had spent a good chunk of his childhood buried in drum machines, turntables, and keyboards. Because more than anything, he wanted to capture the sound of popular rappers, like Run DMC from New York and NWA from Los Angeles. Chad, who called himself Pimp C, had formed a collective with a bunch of other kids in Port Arthur who also loved hip-hop. But for most of them, the idea of turning it into a career seemed ridiculous. After all, basically every rapper that was getting serious mainstream attention was either from the East Coast or the West Coast. Here's Pimp C himself talking about what it was like as a young, aspiring rapper in the late 80s. You know, it sounds crazy now, but it was a crazy time in hip-hop, you know. And uh, we were trying to get in where we fit in, and we was really trying to take on other people's characteristics so that we can get in the game and achieve something and really get in there and have a position in this thing. We didn't realize that being ourselves was going to be the ticket back then. So by the time high school graduation rolled around, there were only two kids left in the collective who were still serious about hip-hop. Pimp C 
and the guy who was widely considered to be Port Arthur's best rapper, Bernard Freeman, a.k.a. Bun B. Together, they began calling themselves the Underground Kings, or UGK. This is Cocaine in the Back of the Ride, the first song from UGK's first album, appropriately titled The Southern Way. Despite only being released on cassette, it is still one of the most important albums in hip-hop history because it is the first true country rap album. Although UGK would eventually be associated with the city of Houston, Port Arthur was actually much closer to rural Louisiana, where much of Pimpsey's extended family lived. And this dichotomy of city life versus country life would come to play a major role in his musical philosophy. Here's a clip from another song on The Southern Way, named after an intersection in Port Arthur that was notorious for rampant drug dealing. Short Texas. Notice the quick two-syllable groupings when he says, I don't give a fuck, and then later, still ain't selling shit. This rhythmic phrasing wasn't common at all back in the late 80s or early 90s, but about two decades later, it would be everywhere, not just in rap music, but in pop music in general. We'll come back to this later in the episode. Pimpsey is essentially saying, don't underestimate us just because we're not from a big city. We have just as much drive, ambition, even ruthlessness as anyone in Houston or H-Town, as he calls it. Bunby would later tell MTV in an interview, quote, because we were small town cats, we spoke from a small town mentality, and a lot of small town people felt that and latched onto it immediately, end quote. Indeed, the Southern Way flew off the shelves in Southern cities like Lake Charles, Louisiana, and Jackson, Mississippi. And before they knew it, UGK were flying to New York to sign a contract with Jive Records. It seemed like a dream come true, but it would turn out to mark the beginning of UGK's long and difficult relationship with the record industry. Jive wanted to re-record and re-release many of the songs from the Southern Way, but they were either unwilling or unable to pay for most of the samples that Pimp C had used to make the beats. So UGK were left to figure out how to recreate these songs without the samples. Eventually, Jive got frustrated that they were taking too long and finished the record without Pimp C's approval, hiring local musicians to sloppily recreate the samples. Let's listen again to the very beginning of Cocaine in the Back of the Ride, as Pimp C had originally produced it. And 
now, let's listen to the exact same portion of the exact same song, but this time from the version that Jive Records would later release. Regarding UGK's major label debut, the 1992 album Too Hard to Swallow, Pimp C would later say in an interview with Scratch Magazine, quote, I didn't have nothing to do with them changes that they made to them songs. In fact, I wasn't even in the studio when they was fucking with them records. It all got fucked up, and in my opinion, that shit is garbage, end quote. But in the South, UGK continued to sell nonetheless, both in music stores and on tour. And for their next album, Super Tight, Pimp C made sure he got to do it his way. One of Pimp C's biggest influences was a funk band from New Orleans called The Meters. Here's a clip of their song, Just Kissed My Baby, released in 1974. Pay special attention to the guitar. I feel like a king. Yeah. Cause I just kissed my baby. And burning don't mean a thing to me. No. Cause I just kissed my baby. Pimpsey hired New Orleans session musicians, most notably the Meters guitarist Leo Nocentelli, to complement his production. The result is a sound that is pimped out, funky, and of course, undeniably Southern. Here's Bun B in conversation with former Jive A&R man Jeff Sledge. Super Tight is a very raw album. Super Tight was like a middle finger to the music industry yeah. kind of a thing. Like <laughs> yeah. We didn't give a shit about anybody, the magazines, the TV shows, the label. Yeah. We didn't really give. Y'all never cared about the label. We got very indifferent, as most people do, about the music industry. Super Tight, released in 1994, would be the first UGK album to make it on the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number 95. But New York and California were still the undisputed focal points of hip-hop culture, and just the idea of Southern rap as its own genre was still pretty much non-existent. But as it turned out, UGK weren't the only Southern rappers who felt ignored and dismissed. I, 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 hold up. And the winner is... Outcast. Word. What's up? Goody Mob in the house. You know what I'm saying? We want to say what's up to New York. You know what I'm saying? Because we from down south. You know what I'm saying? There's New York up in this. You know what I'm saying? Are y'all in here? You know what I'm saying? This y'all city. 
what I'm saying? We just want to say, you know what I'm saying? We'll say what's up to all the original MCs out there, people like that who got their own stuff. So what's up, Dre? <laughs> yeah, first of all, you know what I'm saying? We want to thank God, just, you know what I'm saying, dead serious, because if it weren't for him, you know what I'm saying, we wouldn't be here. But it's like this, though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? The closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and don't nobody want to hear it, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Andre Benjamin, a young newcomer from the Atlanta hip-hop duo Outkast, galvanized the South when he declared at the 1995 Source Awards, quote, the South got something to say. And nobody took this message to heart more than UGK who had just flown to Chicago with a bunch of session musicians to record their third album. And as the story goes, Pimpsey observed his mom listening to the tracks, and upon realizing that she hated them, he decided to scrap nearly all the work they had done and go back to the drawing board. For him, the problem was obvious. The fast-paced environment of Chicago was all wrong for them. To get a sound that was true to who they were, they had to record the album in Texas. And luckily for them, 90 minutes away from Port Arthur in Houston, the hip-hop scene was approaching a golden age, which would all center around one man. In the early 90s, Robert Earl Davis a.k.a. DJ Screw, was working on a technique for remixing songs that mainly involved dropping the pitch and tempo of the song dramatically. On top of this, he would add various effects and layers, creating a sonic experience that is often compared to listening to music underwater. We'll definitely dive more into this on a later episode, but for now, it's important to know that DJ Screw and the rappers that regularly flocked to his studio, known as the Screwed Up Click, would form the basis of a new wave of gangstified Houston hip-hop culture, along with two other very important elements, lean and slabs. Time to get drunk, I'ma crank this shit up, blow the weed. Now we need to serve in the cup. We got the lean off the dean from the scene. I'm coming through and the fade looking so Lean is one of many names for a drink made by mixing prescription strength cough syrup with soda over ice, often with some hard candy thrown in as sweetener. The two main ingredients in the cough syrup, codeine and promethazine, give the user a euphoric and drowsy sensation which quickly became associated with the music of DJ Screw's remix cassettes, or as he called them, screw tapes. The other element that we have to mention here is Houston's car culture, or more simply put, slabs. There's some debate about where and how the term originated, but a slab is a car that is big, American-made, and almost always customized with bright candy paint, spoke wire wheels, and a loud, bass-heavy sound system. 
slow, loud, and banging. Channeling all these elements, the drugs, the cars, and the extra slow, extra syrupy stylings of DJ Screw, UGK released their third album in 1996, titled Riding Dirty. Dedicated to the boys riding slab. Riding Dirty is an ode to Houston's mid-90s hip-hop culture that somehow manages to sound both gritty and slick, both aggressive and emotional, both down-to-earth and over-the-top. And for many fans, this is the quintessential UGK album, an undisputed classic and a banner of pride for Houston and the South. Here's Bunby from an interview with DJ Vlad. Well, the whole album was created as um, about the nightlife in Texas, you know what I'm saying? What it was like being in the streets of Houston and Port Arthur, you know, with the slabs, the candy paint, sip and serve, all of that kind of stuff that was a part of that lifestyle at that time. And um, that's why the album cover is us in the car, because it's really kind of like us riding around through the city at night. Riding Dirty peaked at number 15 on the Billboard chart, and UGK's fame continued to grow. But their relationship with Jive Records only got worse. The label refused to give them anywhere near the amount of money they would need to make a real music video. So amazingly, Riding Dirty had no official singles or music videos to promote its release. Here's Bunby in a 2008 interview with Red Bull Music Academy. I know, I remember the first time we went on the radio and told people that we were broke. And like, we didn't tell the radio station what we were doing. Like, yo, we want to come up and talk on the air today. They was like, all right, come on through. So we went up there and like, so what's going on with UGK? Shit, UGK is broke. I- excuse me? Yeah, man, we broke. The record company ain't paying us. We signed a fucked up deal. Shit is fucked up. And y'all bought all them records and I didn't get a dime of it. So then people call up, be like, well, why y'all didn't get paid? Woo, woo, woo. So then we pull out the contract and start explaining to people on the air how fucked up our contract was. It gave the consumer an inside look into the shit. They, people didn't understand that type of shit. Like, well, you sold 500,000 records. Like, shouldn't you get a check from that? No, I can't get a check from that because the way my deal works, I don't get paid off of that. I get paid off of this. To protest their contract, UGK decided not to work on a follow-up album. Instead, they realized they could make and keep way more money by providing guest verses and beats for other artists. Again, here's Bun B, this time from a 2018 interview. We didn't get any back in. I've never, I've never gotten any royalties, per se, from any of the albums we made um, as a group. But I'm probably, the UGK account, I'm pretty sure it's still about $2 million in the red. And the way they would pacify artists, they'd be like, well, you're still in the red, but we can give you another advance for the next project. So that would, you know, yeah. that would kind of be the only way that we would get any more money from the record company. So a lot of artists from my generation live purely off of 
touring, merchandise, and features. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge one of the guest beats that Pimp C made during this period for a masterpiece song called Break Em Off Something. This beat is very likely the earliest example of what we now call a trap beat with rapid-fire double-time hi-hats and 808 claps. About to fill they motherfucking head up with this ghetto dope. Time to break these holes. Much like the rhythmic phrasing that he used in that one verse on Short Texas that we played earlier, this is another example of Pimp C in the 90s being tapped into elements of Southern hip hop that would eventually overtake mainstream pop music. Despite the lack of promotion, Ridin' Dirty was still a huge win for UGK. The album spread their influence way beyond the South, eventually becoming a favorite of the Brooklyn rapper Jay-Z, who had just released the song Hard Knock Life and was on his way to becoming the most famous rapper in the world. Jay and his team at Rockefeller Records had a sense that the landscape of hip-hop was changing once again. So he called Bun B and personally asked him if UGK would like to do a feature on his next album. And thus begins the story of Big Pimpin'. It's Big Pimpin', baby. It's Big Pimpin', This was an opportunity for UGK to reach a level of success that just a few years ago would have seemed impossible. But there was a problem. The beat, produced by Timbaland, Pimp C absolutely hated it. He hated the flutes. He thought it was, quote, happy-go-lucky. And he said it reminded him of the theme song to the old 60s TV show, Mayberry RFD. Here's Pimp C's friend, the Houston producer, Mr. Lee, from an interview. Man, I was in the studio when we got the record, and he put the beat on, and he was like, he's like, man, what the fuck is this shit? What the fuck is this? They gonna send me this garbage can-ass motherfucking beat for me to rap on? This is what they gonna send me to rap on with Jay-Z, this bullshit? And there were plenty of other reasons for Pimp C to be hesitant. For one... New York was still seen as the capital of hip-hop coastal elitism, and working with a full-blown pop star who called himself King of New York might not sit well for a lot of UGK's small-town fans. And secondly, Pimp C, from day one, had never seen himself as a technical lyricist. He considered himself a character rapper, and to be on a track with two of the most technical rappers alive, Jay-Z and Bun B, might have seemed like a recipe for humiliation. It took nearly every person in Pimp C's orbit to convince him to do this verse. And when he finally decided to do it, he decided that he was going to send a message. Here's Mr. Lee again. And he said, man, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to rap the country shit that I can rap on this motherfucker and send it right back to him. And he basically freestyled the verse. So without further ado, let's listen to Pimp C's verse from the 1999 song Big Pimpin'. 
that jigger, man. Pimp C and B U and B, nigga. Smoking eye, pouring up, keeping lean up in my cup. All my car got leather and wood in my hood. We call it buck. Everybody wanna ball, holla at brawls at the mall. We be up, watching ball, nigga. I can't fuck with y'all. If I wasn't rapping, baby, I would still be riding Mercedes, coming down and sipping daily. No record tell why they pay me. Now what y'all know about them Texas boys coming down in candy toys, smoking weed and talking noise. So let's start at the top. Right off the bat, he's talking about drugs and cars, and specifically the kinds of drugs and cars you would see in and around Houston. Styrofoam cups filled with lean and big pimped out vehicles with leather buckhide interiors and wood grain steering wheels. But let's also take a moment to appreciate how Pimpsey goes out of his way to create a verse that will allow him to stretch and exaggerate his southern accent like never before. Here's a clip of a professional vocal coach, Andrea Caban, explaining one of the principal features of a Texas accent. The back of the tongue is braced up against the back molars, and the opening in the back of the throat is so small that sometimes you get that nasal, twangy sound that you hear right now. And the lip corners are tense, so you don't get a lot of opening in the mouth. I'll say the first two bars the way I would normally pronounce it, which will probably sound very silly. And then I'll play the beginning of the verse again so you can hear how the closed mouth position and tense lip corners make all the difference. Smoking out, pouring up, keeping lean up in my cup. All my cars got leather and wood. In my hood, we call it buck. Also notice how on the word call, he turns a single vowel sound, ah, into two vowel sounds, ow. Instead of saying call, he says cow. In phonetics, this would be called diphthongization, turning a monophthong, or a single vowel sound, into a diphthong, or two vowel sounds. But most people would probably just refer to this as a drawl or an exaggerated lilt. Let's listen again to the next two bars, where it's even more obvious. The words ball, broads, mall, fall, and y'all become bow, broads, mal, fall, and y'all. Many people saw these lines as a direct insult to Jay-Z and New York City in general for appropriating Southern and West Coast pimp culture to try and stay relevant. Let's listen again. For the next two bars, Pimp C turns his crosshairs on Jive Records CEO, Barry Weiss. At this point, it had been three years since the release of Ridin' Dirty, and UGK had still not begun work on their follow-up album. Pimpsey decided that if he was going to rap on this Jay-Z record that he didn't like in the first place, he might as well use it as an opportunity to send a message to his record label. Wow, nigga, 
and baby, I was still be by Mercedes coming down and sipping daily. No record tell why they pay me. If I wasn't rapping, baby, I would still be riding Mercedes. Coming down, sipping daily, no record till Whitey pays me. He's letting everyone know that if Jive wants to see the next UGK album, they're going to see it on his terms. And just to hammer the point home a little harder, the last two lines mention drugs and cars once again. But this time, the car reference is a bit more Texas-specific. He says, What y'all know about them Texas boys coming down in candy toys. This refers to candy paint, a specific style of paint job often used for a slab. Here's Eddie Kennedy, owner of Third Coast Customs Paint and Body Shop in Houston, Texas, discussing how candy paint is different from a regular factory paint job. The whole purpose of candy, what it is, is actually called an iridescent paint. It's actually three colors that are actually combined to one. If you take a silver base and you put the candy red overlay over the silver, it gives you one of the brightest reds that you can get. And that's what gives you that glamour, the high, high gloss glamour, which a factory paint job would never give you that. But it's so extremely wet to well, like what Pimp C used to always say, you know it's candy whenever you can look at a car and you can actually see the clouds going yeah. through the paint. And here's Houston rapper ESG on how the color of a candy paint job on a slab is often a signifier of regional identity. You had to have candy paint. And like you said, uh, Southside did ride red, but every hood had their own color. There was no gang affiliation at all back then. Uh, if you was from Yellowstone, you probably rode a gold yellowish color. You know what I'm saying? People in Harm Clark, they used to really ride candy orange a lot. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you had people, I know a, couple, a lot of people off MAK who rode candy green. Cloverland, they rode black. Bonnie Boys, Cloverland rode black. Uh, some people, you know, would just go out the way and have purple here there. You know what I'm saying? But purple was clean. And there's also another example of that exaggerated drawl in Pimp C's Texas accent. This time, he's turning a diphthong the oi sound in toys and noise, into a triphthong, or three vowel sounds, so the words are now pronounced taoys and naoys. So let's listen again to the full verse from start to finish. And rather than paying close attention to every car or drug reference or every exaggerated vowel sound, let's try to absorb it the way Pimpsey intended, as one giant F.U. from the Deep South. Smoking weed and talking noise. 
And there's also the story about how Pimpsey bailed on the music video shoot for this song in Trinidad because he wouldn't fly over water. And when they finally agreed to do a second video shoot in Miami, he agreed to do it only on the condition that they put his new Mercedes-Benz in the video. But this really isn't that surprising after everything we know about him. Unfortunately, Pimpsey's career after the success of Big Pimpin' would be full of tragedy and triumph. And in 2007, at the age of 33, he was found dead in a hotel room from a codeine overdose with a half-empty, unmarked bottle of cough syrup. But he did live long enough to see Southern rappers completely dominate the music industry in the early and mid-2000s. And in the last few years of his career, he was relentlessly advocating for Southern artists to unionize and free themselves from unfair contracts. So, uh, my thing is this. These record labels are inclined to keep us as dumb as possible. They know that if we get to communicating and putting our heads together and comparing notes, that we're going to figure out some shit real fast. They also know that if we get on the same page, it's a chance that we could unionize. They really don't want that. They don't want rappers united. They don't want artists united. They want division, because divided they can conquer. He will forever be remembered for his unshakable regional pride, coupled with a burning desire to be freed from institutional oppression. And although he would never refer to himself as a hip-hop MC, I think those two things are maybe the best definition there is of real hip-hop. Anatomy of a Verse is created by me, Max Maples, in Brooklyn, New York. Next time, we're going to talk about Kanye West's final verse on the song Gone. Today's episode is dedicated to Chad Lamont Butler a.k.a. Pimp C. Long live the pimp, and thanks for listening.